Hello and welcome to another episode of the Detox Podcast, a parenting podcast where you can detox from the world around you and get a window into how other people live their lives. Come detox with detox. Welcome to 2020. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and I'm here with another exciting episode. It is the first one of the new decade, the new year. I'm very excited. I know we were on a break for a little bit and I wanted to come back with a bang, specifically a big bang. Oh, that's just a joke. Uh, Our guest today is robotics research scientist and associate professor Christian Hubicki. He is the assistant professor of mechanical engineering at Florida State University and the FAMU FSU College of Engineering. He specializes in legged locomotion, optimization, and biomechanics, and his work has been featured in numerous media outlets, ranging from the Science Channel's Outrageous Acts of Science to CBS's The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Now, Christian is a fascinating individual. I think you're really going to enjoy it. We get into a lot of discussion about the singularity, about robotics, Robotics about uh, you know what uh, fact versus fiction, uh, how robotics can play a positive role, why individuals may be scared of it, but what we can realistically expect from robots both now and in the future. And then we also dig a little bit into his time on the TV show Survivor. Yes, fun fact, he was on that show. Uh, he was on uh, season 38, David versus Goliath. And uh, I think you're uh, really going to enjoy it. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It was season 37, uh, David versus Goliath. So I think you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, so stick around. Be back with Christian after this. Welcome back to the Detox Podcast. With me at this time is the one and only Mr. Christian Hubicki. Christian, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderfully today, Joe. How are you? I am doing fantastic. I'm really, really excited to dig into this because there's a lot of different uh, topics and I think discussions we can have around the field of robotics. And you and I have already like discussed a little bit offline and I'm excited about that. But uh, I, I, I even got in the mood for it. I've been binging Lost in Space on Netflix, getting familiar with the alien <laughs> robot on there. So I feel like I'm, I'm well versed in all things robotics. I, that's all you <laughs> need to know. That's all you need. You're good. Right? <laughs> but first, one of the questions I want to talk about and I kind of want to just dig right into it because I can't I can't wait I want to have uh, my dessert first but I want you to talk about we had uh, discussed a little bit offline about uh, the singularity by Ray Kurzweil now if you could do <laughs> me a favor and kind of put into context for the listeners in a, in a way that I know I won't be able to what is the premise of the singularity and why do some some people swear by it and others do not give it much credence so, so, so. Uh, um, well, well, first off, again, thank you for having me. It's, sure. it's a fun time. A- anytime I get the chance to talk about robots to people who who don't work for me or work when work <laughs> next to me, it's it's a treat. It's a treat. Sure. It's a lot of fun. So, uh, but so often when I talk to people, uh, people have heard about this concept of the technological singular singularity, and right. and some people would just call it the singularity. And singularity means a lot of different things. It, you know, in math, it basically kind of means like dividing by zero. That's really what it means. Okay. Uh, but but in terms of the technological singularity, people singularity, it was this notion popularized by Ray Kurzweil um, some number of years ago. I'm not a fully fully an expert on it, but I'm often asked about it. And uh, the idea is that compute computation is really on this accelerating pace. Like the, the our ability to make computers that process information and make decisions is accelerating. Right. Um, and it's accelerating by something called Moore's Law. Now, Joe, have you heard of Moore's Law before? Is that something you would have encountered in your days? If not, I, I certainly will explain it to the audience. But, I um, have a yeah. It's not something I'm familiar with. I know my uh, my wife. Her maiden name is Moore, and she has a grandpa that has his own Moore's law. So I don't think it's the same thing. <laughs> okay, it, it, you know it may be for all I know. He could be the Moore who invented this. Maybe so. so. Um, yeah, but, it, but the idea is that um, the number of transistors on a computer chip, you know, roughly the, the amount of like little switches and computations mm-hmm. a computer chip has on it uh, doubles roughly every two years. Um, okay. And this is just had just kind of has been a fact of how co- computers have developed. So imagine every two years. Imagine your bank account doubled every two years. You know, oh, wow. I, I would That'd like that. You you yeah. would be very rich very quickly. Right. And it's it, it's an ex, it's an exponential curve. And so the idea is that if computation keeps getting faster and faster and faster, and computers keep getting smarter and smarter and smarter, won't they get so smart at some point that like we're completely left in the dust as humans? Sure. In terms of what we can do, right? right? And so some people talk about this idea as as 
once it gets so smart, they're smarter, that computers are smarter than us, and the world will change faster than we can understand. You can't see beyond it. It's like the singularity. It's, like, uh, it, it, it's okay. uh, and some uh, like a black hole is a singularity where you can't see beyond. So right. um, at that point, like so, expect our world to change so fast, so quickly that we don't even know what happened. Okay, that's sort of the idea. That's what okay. the people who, pro- who talk about the uh, singularity are talking about. Um, and a lot of those premises are true, that the, that that, uh, that computation is getting faster, faster, faster. Um, but the thing that I've learned whenever I talk to people about robots and computers and people are justifiably excited about the future or maybe scared of the future sometimes right. as to what, what it's going to bring, I, I try to remind them that it's very hard to predict uh, in advance what technology is actually going to do, how it's right. actually going to be, be implemented. I mean, if you go back to someone who grew up in maybe the 50s, you know, they might have heard about nuclear-powered cars. Like, that's yeah. going to be the future. You know, right. I, 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 mean, I, I mean, maybe Elon Musk is working on that, but, I, but <laughs> for all I know. But as far as I know, I, that's not a thing, and it never right. became a thing. Flying cars, jetpacks. These are not things that you know we have in our daily lives, and for right. because the future is hard to predict. So yeah. that's some. So if, if so, if you of your listeners have heard of this concept, it's it, it's it's very popular. Sometimes you run into someone who who loves the idea because, uh, in part, because sort of one of the promises of the singularity is they say computers will get so smart that you can upload your brain into one of these computers and live forever. Oh yeah, that was and, a movie with uh, Johnny Depp, I believe. Oh yeah, yes, yes. Um, what was the name of that one? I yeah, yeah, I know it. what you're talking about. And um, and, and there are freaky. lots of other science fiction fantasies that do that. I mean, the Matrix. Think about the Matrix. You're kind of living in the Matrix. Yeah. Um, but uh, and that's an incredibly difficult problem, and not even one that's just how fast can your computers be. You have to understand how the brain works in a very fundamental way, and how to basically mess with it without destroying your consciousness. And that's very difficult. But Tran- a lot of people transcendence. Like it. Yeah. Transcendence, yeah, that's the movie. Yeah. That's it. That's the movie, yes. Yeah. So th- a lot of people are very excited about it. So I, so when people talk to me about it, which is very common, I'm like, yeah, you know, it's, it's a neat idea. I would, I would not put my chips down on immortality this way. Right. No, I think it's, I think it's interesting. It's also interesting to me when you think about um, technology evolving, right? It, it's because the, the demands of society evolve, too. I mean, you talked about uh, nuclear-powered cars and jetpacks. I mean, these are the things people wanted – in the 50s because that is what they thought is the the like this is how we evolved there wasn't even nobody was talking about solar energy no one was talking about wind energy no one was talking about these different types of technology because it was that was something that one could not conceive of in the time yeah that's exactly right i mean and we don't necessarily know how our needs are going to change over time and right and technolo- technology you know it might seem like it's booming in one area at one point but then all of a sudden it could dry up you know, there could be right. a winter in that technology where something else can come along that no one saw coming. I mean, uh, the Internet. I mean, how many people yeah. were talking about the, the idea of something like the Internet in the 50s, 60s, 70s? I mean, I, I, that wasn't my time period, but that was, that, that was such a weird concept. I remember when it was being really rolled out in the 90s. I, yeah. I had a hard time figuring out what it was, but, like, there would be, like, news programs. Like, what is the Internet? Right. right. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, what does it even mean? And, I mean, right. now we, like, breathe it like the air. It's not a big deal. Um, But, like, so it was such a weird thing to not see coming, whereas, like, if it were – imagine if if nuclear-powered cars were the future. How easy is that to explain, nuclear-powered cars? So clearly we would have seen that coming. So, (laughs) yeah. So that's how how far afield the internet was in popular culture. So that's that's always my caution when you read a cool article. Right. And and it's fun, right? It's fun. I like doing it too. Like, you're like, oh, this thing could be the thing of the future. Right. And and, and, and it could. It could. What often it's talking about is, like – there might be a research program in place that sees the potential in this, so they got some funding to, and they, pu- they published some preliminary results, which are exciting. Sure. But there are a lot of stages between that and changing your life. Right. And I, whenever I think about technology for the future, I always think about – I'm a huge uh, fan of the Back to the Future trilogy, and I always remembered I watched um, the uh, the – DVD commentary when they first released the trilogy and, and Robert Zemeckis talked about how he always wanted to do one movie. He never wanted to do a sequel and then there was it was so popular they did it and so he had already set it up to go into the future and he said I didn't want to do the future because you can it's problematic trying to predict the future so I just went as far off left field as I could possibly go with the technology because I knew it was all going to be wrong and some of it turned out to be true with the video conferencing the FaceTimes the working from home I mean some of it was true but but yeah it's, it's just yeah, it's problematic. 
it was. I mean, I, I, it was a lot of it is kind of eerily accurate. You're sort of right. like, uh, yeah, you're like as a result of trying to be as weird as you could. Yeah, that, right. that's a great point. Um, but yeah, that's that's my caution to people who are like, especially when it comes to investing. You know, just because oh, yes. you fear something cool uh, about a cool technology, I mean, you know, understand it's a risk. It's right. A risk. Right. Uh, yeah, no, 100%. And and now I want to kind of uh, segue a little bit into the specific work you do. I know you talk about, uh, you focus on robot mobility, specifically robots getting around in the real world environment, legs, wheels, drones. Can you talk me through some of the, the current work you've been focused on? And then uh, what are some some things people can, can look out for or can uh, notice uh, how it may impact their lives over the next several years or decades? No, it's a great question, and and I will try to resist uh, trying to predict the future, like I just sure. cautioned myself <laughs> right. against. But I, I bet I, I bet I'll fail. I bet I'll fail at some point. Uh, so, so yeah. So, so in my work, I, I'm a robotics research scientist. That's kind of how I label myself. But in practice, I'm a professor, and I run a research laboratory uh, here at here at Florida State University. And we study robot mobility, as you said, where we're trying to get robots out in the real world, uh, actually trying to get around doing stuff in your life. And it's a really tough problem for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, many people, and, and, I, and particularly, I study legged robots, robots that walk around on two legs. That's what my dissertation is on. That's what my research program largely focuses on, with some exceptions. Sure. And you, people have probably seen these really awesome-looking YouTube videos, pro- predominantly out of this company called Boston Dynamics. Uh, oh, yes. Yes, yeah. Located, pro- appropriately enough, in, in Boston. As, right. As, you know, what, a, what a weird coincidence. Um, <laughs> And um, and they and they put these they have robots doing backflips and all kinds of cool yeah. stuff and they do and they do amazing work and it is and, and and really admirable work and there are a few other companies out there too that are a little less well known that also make really cool robots and you might say the future's here. Excellent. You know, so I'm going to have these walking, backflipping robots coming up <laughs> to my house, you know, delivering my packages. It's like, right. Well, there there is a bit of a problem with legged robots in general and. The, um, both in, uh, in in that they take a lot of energy to run. Okay. Oh. Okay. Um, so they they actually so you know your your cell phone runs on a battery. You know right. most robots in fact run on batteries. Uh, but um, and you can compare how much energy a walking robot takes to walk. And compare it to the amount of energy a human takes to walk. You know, yeah. where we're powered by our food, right? So right. we can compare calories to battery energy. That that, that that's all totally possible, and. Uh, robots, they uh, and, and legged robots, bipedal robots, take five times the energy as people. Oh my God! Five times, five times. So it's kind of like if you had a car that would go twenty miles in a gallon, twenty uh, would, would, that could go uh, hundred miles a gallon versus mm-hmm. a car that could go twenty miles a gallon. You know, wow. one is clearly way better than the other. Right. And, and and so so they have a problem with energy costs. And you might say, well, what about drones? How, haven't I heard about Amazon delivering yeah. packages via yes. drones? And that's really cool too. I mean, and, and they're good. They can get around. Uh, drones have a little bit of a hard time carrying heavy loads um, because they're sure. trying to fly while basically trying to fight gravity yeah. with their propellers. They're trying um, to be aerodynamic. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, but uh, but drones are even less uh, require even more energy than legged robots to go around. To, to walk oh, wow. around. They take even more energy. So there's an energy problem with getting robots around. And the easiest way is to get around is just drive, have wheels, right? And so uh, that, so, so, but wheels have problem with mobility. They have hard time getting over obstacles. You know, if you, going up the stairs to your house to drop off your Amazon package. Oh, they sure. Have a bit of yeah. a tricky time. So, and, and that's, and so it's a weird uh, trade off in that like wheels and track vehicles are, are pretty dang efficient. They'll get around, they can carry your package, but they have a hard time getting over stuff. Uh, all the way on the other end of the spectrum to drones where they get over stuff pretty well. Uh, but they're not very efficient, and they have a hard time carrying stuff. Sure. So my so my work is often about finding the middle ground with legged robots and figuring out how to make them more efficient and being able to get around in more environments. So that's the thrust of sure. the current problems in legged robot mobility out in the real world. Okay. Now talk me through what the uh, I guess how do I want to put this the the overall purpose of of having these robots available, so uh, maybe maybe let me pose it in this way. It's like I think when you when you hear people talking about developing robot like medical ro- robotic people can uh, robot excuse me people can wrap their minds around like oh okay this I see how this can be beneficial for surgery or for procedures or whatever the you know these different options. But when I hear this stuff about um, you know legs versus wheels versus uh, drones, I think a lot of people might go, "This is great for maybe package delivery, but how will this help me or help the world in general um, moving forward?" 
Oh yeah, so that's a great question. I should I should have covered the applications earlier. That's okay. So I mean, the, the 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 quick and dirty one that's really really important is whenever there are people in danger. So oh, if you want, okay. if you if sure. you wanted if if you had a, a disaster scenario, right? So yeah. what if a bil- uh, an apartment building's on fire, okay? And you needed a robot to go in, run up the stairs, break down a door, look for people inside, carrying them out, carry them out if you would, right? Uh, carry carry them out if you need to. You want a robot that can burst in, run upstairs, these and, and, and do that. That's an ex- kind of extreme case. And an sure. even more extreme case that was very relevant was a, a nuclear power plant disasters. Oh there was, yes. There, there was the uh, Fukushima Daiichi yes. uh, power a power plant in Japan in 2011, which had, you know, had some issues because of the yep. tsunami. And um, and at the time, you know, J- this was happening in Japan, and ro- Japan is relatively well known for its robots. Right. So naturally, they're like, well, let's send in robots to to go and and, and shut down the plant. You know, it's, it's spewing out radiation. Send in the robots. Well, the robots weren't that mobile. They were good uh, for putting on shows. They were good for putting on like nice PR demos for Honda, but right. they weren't reliable enough to send in these disaster scenarios. So uh, okay. you had this really horrible dilemma. And um, and the actually the uh, the U.S. military funding agency called DARPA, uh, they're they're famous for funding things like the the stealth fighter and even the uh, early versions of the internet. Okay. Um, they put out they put out a grand challenge in the United States, saying where they basically said, "Hey, we're going to set up." A like a mock nuclear disaster, like a put a, have a building which is quote unquote having an emergency, and we're going to put out a two million dollar prize to the team that can best send in a robot to autonomously go in and shut off a valve, and oh, wow. like and, and get out of there or knock down a wall and right. then uh, and, and then get around. And <clears throat> so there was this grand challenge that happened in 2015, and that was in direct response to that disaster. So. Okay. There's that. So and so anytime you want to go to a place where it's dangerous for people. Um, also, you just generally, it's good to have, um, you want to have what we call sort of force multipliers that, yeah, we could have, a, we could have me trying to carry in my groceries or me trying to do a bunch of work out in the field. But if you had a bunch of ro- robots out there to help me, then I could do a lot more. Um, so, so you do sure. a lot more. So basically just increase your productivity. And for me, the, the last application, which is most interesting, why I study two-legged robots, is because we have two legs. Not only do we design our world around us, which we have two legs, things with stairs, and, you know, right. and we have bumpy curbs, um, but also there are people who have lost their mobility in their, on their two legs. So uh, and every time I learn how to make a robot walk better, I actually learn a lot about how to make a robotic prosthetic device or robotic oh, exoskeleton to help people yeah. who have lost the ability to walk. So, so those Talking, are the applications. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. The um, the multiplier one just made me think about Star Wars. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's hard not to go there. It's hard know, not right, to think about that. Yeah, right. But the um, but the exoskeleton is fascinating. I remember I I've seen a a little bit. I mean, we've all seen movies with people with exoskeletons, but but I've seen a few videos of of I feel like they were early developments of exoskeletons on people who had lost the ability to to move and they were trying it out where where is the technology with regards to to exoskeletons uh in general is that something that appears to be making a lot of progress or is it kind of just slow slow growth at this point we're actually at a very nice inflection point uh where we're starting to see accelerating progress in exoskeleton research in a couple of ways in a couple of ways um, the, in one way that's a bit on the simpler side but still very effective is creating these very rudimentary exoskeletons, if you will. So, so for people like who are working in factories. So imagine you're working like in an aircraft assembly plant, like you're working mm-hmm. for Boeing or something or, right. or Airbus, and you have to go around. You have to you know put rivets in a plane. You have to go inspect stuff. Uh, a lot of your time in your life, you are leaning over, bending your back, crouching down, and that and, you know this creates over time personal injury. Yeah. Okay. So they make very simple exoskeletons that, you, that that are really just mechanics. They're not even robotic. That they will just that if you that if you crouch down and you and you and you hold there for a second, it'll just lock in place. So it's like you can sit in midair okay. on a chair. And so like just very simple things like that, and that actually can go a long way to improving your health if you're working in these factories. Um, Another way that is uh, that, that is it is useful is that when you want to augment human like uh, uh, capability, make sure like a superhuman, if you will. Okay. That in, in the sense that if you needed to carry like a hundred pound backpack. 
for instance. Like, yeah. and this is, and the military loves this sort of thing because they want their soldiers to be car- able to carry more stuff. Right. And our and our exoskeletons are getting there too. They're they're doing better with that. Um, and particularly one of the problems was. Yes, you can strap a person in, in, in an exoskeleton and it will kind of move along with them, but the person's kind of fighting the exoskeleton to some degree. You know, okay. it's only moving with them so well, so it's kind of like uh, you're kind of moving through molasses. You get, through, you, get, sure. you get tired over time. So you get tired quickly. But the algorithms have gotten better for predicting how people move, so it's getting smoother and smoother <clears throat> and more and more practical. Okay. Uh, so, so that's the second way that exoskeletons are getting better, and I, and, and the state of the art—it's not like field deployed yet, but it's getting promising. Like, if you, if I saw a product in the next couple of years that came out that actually was being used, I would not be shocked. Okay. Um, probably the most interesting thing that's and most difficult project is when you take, is when you're trying to put a, a an able-bodied person in an exoskeleton, and try to make them walk easier where it takes less energy to walk, okay? okay. Yeah. So you walk around, you get tired because it takes energy to walk. You're burning calories. And for many years, people said, hey, why don't we just have a rope, have them sit in a robot, and the robot kind of pushes their legs forward and basically does the work for them. So it makes it easier or thoughtless to walk, right? Right. It turns out this was shockingly difficult because mm. the way that our bodies function when we walk is, is horrendously complicated. And that when you try to make little changes to how we move by pushing us in one direction, we tend to fight it. And it huh. doesn't work the way you expect. So it actually made it harder to walk. For wow. years this was the case. And only in the last, I'd say, three to four years, which is fairly recent in the, science, in the scientific research, that people figured out the algorithms to, that, that will sort of change the robot motion, the exoskeleton motion, so that way it's more efficient for you to walk in. And this is, it took a lot of work. And basically the way they do it is that they strap you on the, they strap the exoskeleton on you, yeah. and, they tell, and they put you on a treadmill, and they put an oxygen mask over your face, oh, and they tell yeah. you to start, and they start to tell you to start walking, okay? Start yep. walking. And then slowly over time, the exoskeleton will start exploring different ways to try to push your leg as you're walking. And the O2, the O2 mask, the resp- is, go- is measuring how much oxygen you're using and therefore how much energy you are burning. And, and it's figuring out, was that better? Was that worse? And incrementally over the course of hours, the exoskeleton will learn how to make you walk more efficiently. And it works. It works. So, um, so it's so anyway. It's a pretty. Uh, so th- those are the. So that's very promising. Very recently, but still in the re- in very much in the research stage. So that's where we're at in exoskeletons. <clears throat> that's fascinating. And so it's 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 calculating the changes, and then uh, so it's fact- factoring in the changes. It's do- so um, how do I put this? It's it's making a. a uh, uh, I the jargon is lost to me, but it's basically saying that's okay. Fine. Let me let me um, uh, if I push here. Does this change the breathing? And if so, how? And if it does, um, and it, and we see how it does, is it better or worse? And then it's just factoring that in. So the next time it knows it's using that as a baseline, it's just increasing in its knowledge. Is that is that close to accurate? Yeah, it's close to accurate. Okay. I mean, and, and, and one way that – and one sort of important nuance that I didn't talk about is that basically it's saying, if I push you this hard at this time in this way, does that – improve things or make things worse. If it's if it, right. it makes it, if things worse, don't do that. If it makes it better, do more <clears throat> of that. Okay. And it keeps trying that over and over again. Now, what you said is actually what we're tr- what's what's difficult and what we're trying to do is where you said it tries to figure out it tries pushing this way and tries to figure out what's happening right. in your body. That's trickier because but but something we would like to be able to do because if we understand that oh, when I push on this leg muscle in this way, what it's doing is it's easing up on this other muscle and et cetera, right. et cetera, et cetera, this sort of chain of events. And if you um, and, and that's why it makes it better. If you have that understanding, you can actually do, you, you could, instead of taking hours to train, maybe you take minutes right. to train the, these devices. So yeah, that's the idea. That's fascinating. Do you think that, I, I'm going down like a rabbit hole and I probably shouldn't, but do you think... Um, we're going. We as individuals are going to get to a point where, because I know we're already, um, you know, you have things like pacemakers for hearts, right? And so you have stuff where people get, um, you know, artificial knees and and different hips uh, implants and stuff. Are we going to get to a point where we have maybe like fifty percent of our makeup is some type of robotic technology and that it can function well with with our bodies? Maybe this is a bad way to predict the future, but I'm just infinitely curious about that. 
No, it's a great thing to talk about and speculate about. It, it, you know, as, as as long as your as your intelligent audience, I think, understands that I, I'm not a uh, I'm not putting money in out. No, But yeah, but in terms of thinking about it, like so, like what would be the reason that we'd want to be like fifty percent bionic? Right. right? So, right. like, what would be the incentive that would get that, that would get us there? That's the question I would think about. Sure. Well, certainly, if you had an injury where you lost, you had a stroke, you lost your maybe the functionality of half of your body. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a very strong incentive, and those would almost certainly be the first adopters of such a technology. Um, the uh, the other would be is that uh, would be somehow replace our bodies because they break down over right. time and like and if, and so you know like having a mechanical heart um as opposed to a uh, um as opposed to a biological heart i mean right. we do that today but as we but but anyone who i think who knows people have gone through open a heart trans a, a heart transplant or have had to do an artificial heart you know they they wear out they, right they aren't as reliable as biology in fact there's i think that reliability um, is a big problem for these robots or, or these or these machines in general with these complicated machines. Right. We have yeah in our bodies we have these elaborate repair mechanisms while which are imperfect. Uh, they keep us alive for theoretically decades, uh, if and over a century sometimes. Right. Um, so so if we got so if we wanted to get to the point where we were doing these really elaborate refits of our bodies. We would have to make sure we'd have to make sure that there was a feasible way of making sure they keep working, right? And I think that that would be that reliability is a real interesting but hard problem. Sure, and that it makes sense because there's a a, a, a lot of nuances that are involved with the human body in general, and then adding robotics to the to the mix as well, which you kind of already discussed a little bit. That's Awesome. Thank you for humoring me while uh, down <laughs> down that. It's a great path. question. It's yeah. a great question. No, it's yeah. it's, it's awesome. Yeah, and uh, it, it, no, I appreciate that. Um, yeah. So so I mean, and one more, uh, I'll dovetail off that a little bit more. Sure. Like if you think about like you know you have a car, and I guess if you have a decent car, you might consider it reliable, right? right. Um, but sometimes it breaks down. Uh, what if your body was only as reliable as your like half decent car? Oh God! You know? Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right, and those are well engineered machines. I mean, yeah. by massive corporations, you know, millions of dollars of development, and really smart people working on it. So, just in terms of a reality check as to where we would be, we'd have to be more reliable than our best cars, and then throw computers into the mix. Right. Uh, I mean, you, you're you recording a podcast right now, right. and you are wisely having backups of the recording. Right. Because it could go wrong. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> you know? So, and, 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 that's, and that's the wise thing to do, given the state of our technology. Right. Now, I want to segue into, because I know there's a lot of parents that are listening and may be fascinated and go, well, how can I, how can I expose my children to robotics and engineering and, and have them go down this path if they're so inclined? So can you talk a little bit about how you first got into it and kind of your life growing up to, to how you got to uh, the research lab you're at now? I know that that's a lot of years, but still, if you could kind of walk me through your origin story, so to speak. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. So, um, so my sort of first for, foray into getting interested in robots really was Legos when I was a okay. little kid. Uh, probably I was probably like five, probably four or five to eight, and I really got into into Legos. And in the era where I got into Legos, there wasn't a Lego Mindstorms kit that was really like. A, Computer programmable. I actually did have what was called a Dacta Lego set, which all, which what it had, it had a bunch of like Lego blocks on it, but it had one motor, and it had this giant brick, which what which uh, which was the controller. And oh, I think like, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like it's like eight buttons on it. Yes, and I had, yes, and I, yes. Up, down, left, right, A, B <clears throat> is what you had. It's almost like right. a giant Nintendo controller. Right. <laughs> yeah. And um, and and you could do very rudimentary programming with it. It was sort of just a script that you that you could say. I was like, I want this to do up, down, left, right, and I make little things that were kind of like robots. Right. Right. So, um, and for me, I was very lucky that my parents managed to find some science camps that I could go to over the summer, so that way I get a little bit more exposure to computer programming. I remember, uh, you know, you know, I, I, my, I, grew, I, grew, I, sorry, I um, was born in 1985. Okay. So 
Um, we, uh, so computers were not in every home when I was born. And I right. think we got our first computer in like 96. So a lot of, so there was a point where I knew about programming, but my, I didn't have a computer at home just because that was not something that most people had. Right. And so I remember I would be writing computer code in a notebook. Uh, so eventually, I guess I, so eventually when I, when I had a computer, presumably I could, I could type this out. Right. Um, so, so over, so throughout, so I would go to these little science camps. And so I would keep a lookout for those if you're a parent. Uh, I, those are very formative to me. Okay. And then when I got to uh, high school, um, I, I was in a high school robotics team. And these are increasingly popular in the United States. In fact, they're so popular that in the state of Minnesota, there are more high school robotics teams than there are hockey teams. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. There, wow. And there are multiple. There are yeah. So they're extremely popular. Um, and uh, th- there are multiple organizations. One is called First F I R S T, which stands for for inspiration and Rec- recognition of science and technology. There's another organization called Vex V E X, uh, which which does ro- high school robotics teams as well. And these are organizations where um, you start a club. And then there's some, and every year the organization hosts competitions that you compete with your robot in. Okay. And you, against other teams. And now there are, you know, thousands and thousands of robotics teams across the country. That's, so, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I did in high school. And then uh, from there, I, I, if you were interested in robotics, uh, you, you go into go to college and you typically take some kind of engineering field. For me, it was mechanical engineering. Um, you can also do electrical, computer science. You can, you can do math. There are lots of options. Pretty, anything, pretty much anything technical. For like you an undergrad? Go into robotics. Yeah, as an undergrad. Sure. And then I did my master's and, uh, and PhD and a postdoc. And now I'm a professor. Nice. Yeah. That's, that's very cool. I know <clears throat> that... Uh, yeah, so I was born in 87 as well. And so, yeah, I, I think we got our first computer in like 97, 96, 97, mm. somewhere there. And it was, uh, yeah, and that was, uh, to your point, it's it's not something everybody has. And so when I see a lot of kids, because I, I, uh, I taught high school uh, for a year before starting uh, any additional work. But even in high school, I could see people were getting more into robotics. Uh, robotics and engineering and uh, those type of fields and and studies than I know that anybody did when I was in school and so now that I have kids I they're instantly drawn to it I, I sent you a link for there's this uh, a toy called a mango bot that my kids love <laughs> and and I have and and it's it's you know rudimentary coding you just you've got little tiles and you stack them about which direction you want the robot to go and then you lay a tile out and or a, a mat at and you try and uh, get the the robot to follow your instructions to the specific uh, spot on the mat and my kids are fascinated with that and uh, and so what I'm already trying to do is like well they're already fascinated I want to keep it going because I'm fascinated by it so I'm trying to educate them while I'm educating myself as well so this is fascinating that's perfect in fact I'm glad you brought that up so so those kinds of programming that you were it's a kid dragging a block from A to B um, you know uh, that 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 is fantastic training for future programming um, sometimes I'll get kids that come into my robotics lab and tours, and they'll and I'll ask, "Hey, have you ever programmed before?" And it's like, "Well, I've I've done you know dragging blocks code." There's actually something called Scratch, by the way. Scratch. Okay. It's, if you look up, if you Google Scratch online, it's a very simple programming language for kids to pick up. The, so someone will be like, I, "I use Scratch, but that's not real programming." It is. It really is. That's awesome. It, it, the, you the concepts you learn from that. It's only it just it just looks more complicated when you move to the other programming languages. Sure. The same things that we that I program my robots in, and all my student, my all my graduate students program the robots in. Um, it, it's, it's the exact same concepts. I mean, so yeah. so uh, that's act. So any parents out there who see anything where there's some kind of programming capability, uh, whether it's on, I guess you would do it. Do they program the Mangobot through like a like a, like an app on a phone? Is that what they do? Uh, so this one does not have an app. It's um. So you mean like when the when myself and the kids are interacting with it? Is that what you were asking? Oh yeah, I mean like like so they say they'll drag blocks and tell it to do things. Yeah, and yeah. That'll be a, yeah, through an app. Uh, yeah, so there is like one uh, central control, and they've got the blocks, and they stick it, they stick it in order of what they wanted to do first, like in order of operation on the little um, like console thing or whatever, and then they hit go, and then it reads it one block at a time, and then the robot goes like you know one, two, three, that kind of a thing. That awesome. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and, and and that's the essence of programming that kids can learn from an early age. I mean, just the idea that 
of programming a literal set of instructions, and then the robot will do literally what you tell it to do, whether it's a good idea or not. Right. That 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 is that is a fundamental lesson of robotics and computer programming or any kind of future in sort of algorithmic development. I mean, that's right. that's the core. And the sooner you can get kids exposed to that, I think the more better off they'll probably be. Right. I was having this conversation. Uh, one of the last episodes I did was um, with a uh, author and educator named Jessica Leahy, and she talked about the gift of failure. But in that discussion, I talked about we discussed how when we were younger and the the idea and I know this is a lesson that I, I was told a lot was, well, we meaning my family, we're not math people. So we're just there's only so far you can go. So just understand you won't like it. You won't get it, but just struggle through it. And I've always been drawn to it. And we talked about how now I feel like I'm playing catch up because I realized I heard something really amazing a couple of years ago that said there's not not math people and math people you can learn anything. It's just how it's presented to you and how you're interacting with it. And then some people may be more inclined for one thing or another, but, but anybody can get a concept. It's the way it's presented to you. I, 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 I fully agree with that, uh, with that approach. I mean, that's, I mean, I, in my lab, uh, itself, I mean, I'll have high school students who come in and, uh, will, will actually intern in my lab here. And, and it's just, if you present it to them the right way, and they're curious. There's there's almost always a way to get them to understand what is really an advanced concept. A lot of times it's like a graduate level robotics concept, but put the right way, they can actually handle it and do stuff with it. Right. And I've 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 never been disappointed by that capability. Um, and. And another way to in, sort of underscore this is that we also have YouTube videos now. Like yep. you can yes. learn where they will expose in so many different ways a concept. Like it, it, uh, you know, if you want to learn about basically anything, there's probably someone. There's probably about 20 people who made YouTube videos about right, it. Right, right. One of those people might might explain it in the way that really hits you. Yeah. Um, and another thing I, I want to point out is that a lot of these concepts that sound super scary sounding or super crazy complex sounding like like artificial intelligence or machine learning right you might think it's like some incomprehensible gobbledygook that you could never understand right um and, and so whenever i give a talk i actually kind of peel back the equations and i say look this is actually what the equations look like and it's a lot of equations because it's a computer it can handle lots of stuff but all the math is no more complicated than if you have like one of those basic scientific calculators something that has a square root on it yeah something like that it has an e to the has a little has the letter e on it right and if you have that i mean all of the equations inside of a of a crazy machine learning algorithm it's just using those symbols really yeah um so so uh and and so if you sort of understand what those do that that's really the crux of even some of the most advanced algorithms that we use um and the stuff you hear that's like cutting edge today so uh, so whenever I pe- see people like like kind of like it's like oh uh, you know machine learning sounds so complicated I sort of be like eh, it's not rocket science right, you know, it's, right. I, I, I don't know if it's a good analogy or not but, <laughs> but so so but it's gettable it's gettable right I mean, I, I've I've never been disappointed especially by very young students who come in what they've been able I've never been disappointed by what they by what they've been able to get from this in fact I've very often been extremely impressed that's. Fantastic. I know we're starting to, to, to wrap up and the conversation is amazing. I could go on and on and on, but, but, uh, but I know that <clears throat> one of the things you were on, uh, recently was you were on the TV show survivor. So I'll ask you uh, a, a question about that before we get wrapping up, but I want to know how from your education and your background and your learning, what drew you to the game of survivor and then how did you take your mindset uh i've seen it but how did you initially take your mindset and apply it to that game so i loved survivor whenever it started airing when i was 14 years old and if i did my math right you were either 12 11 or 13 when it started airing i was 13 yes Yep. Yeah. So and so and it was it came out at a very impressionable age for me, and I always thought that was really cool. I want to do that someday. Right. And you know, years go by, and I try. I've tried out a couple of times, heard nothing. Like you send an audition tape, and you basically goes off into the void. You hear right. Right. And then and I was about to get. A, I was about to apply for jobs as a professor, and I sort of saw that as like the last chance I'd have to go try applying one more time. I get a phone call the next day, and there's a whole elaborate process you go through for five months to get on the show. And to answer your question of like how my approach to the show kind of like took hold, 
Um, I can actually talk a little bit about the audition process. Sure. Where, um, and part of the audition process is if you get far enough, they, the show Survivor flies you out to Los Angeles for like a series of interviews where you actually get to meet the host, Jeff Probst, in one of those interviews. Right. And, and that's a big high-pressure interview audition right there. And the first thing is like I sit down and I'm wearing my shirt that has robots in it. And if you watch the show, it's <laughs> yep. the very same robot shirt that I wear on the show. Yep. Um, and I sit down, and Jeff's like, "What? what's that? And he points at the shirt. Like, oh, they're robots. And I was like, oh, tell me about that. And I immediately launch into how... I would treat the game of Survivor like a concept called system identification, where if I'm we're dealing with people, I want to identify what their system dynamics are, are like. And I explain the concept of system dynamics and robotics and how I will use that to be able to get along with people. And I was <laughs> like, and in my head I'm thinking, this is either going to crash and burn, and they're going to say, this guy's crazy, get him out of here, or it'll be a success and they'll put me on the show. And thankfully, it was the latter. Right, right. And, and, and it was sort of emblematic of the fact that I sort of had these analogies to how we get robots and algorithms to work in my in my job and how we apply them to various aspects of the game and, and frankly, real life. I mean, and this it was in some more obvious ways than others. Um, in the opening challenge of the show, um, uh, the, the theme of the show was David versus Goliath, right. uh, where you had one tribe of underdog losers, which they decided to put me on, as they sort of branded me. And the other side of these hyper, you know, like, like, aff, like affluent and or successful people, the Goliaths, and, uh, and, and, and to square off in this format, um, it, we, the, the weakest Davids were chosen. Apparently, I was one of them to beat this challenge. <laughs> And and the challenge ended with this slider puzzle, right? And so you, where you had to you basically you move blocks around and you get one big piece out of this out of the slide puzzle. You know, there's a combination that you have to get. And so I do the puzzle and and I got it done really fast because I was really panicking. I want to make sure I got it done. I didn't want to lose. That'd be real bad. I'm survivor. You don't want right. to lose. Right. And uh, and and Jeff, <clears throat> the host, says Christian. That was a really fast time you got on the slide puzzle. How'd you do it? And I said, Well, Jeff, it wasn't really fair. In undergrad, I wrote slider puzzle-solving algorithms, so I figured that that would be a good strength for me. And so that that got quite a reaction on the show. So like that was a literal way, and um, and and just generally having that analytical mindset of being able to um, sort of assess situations and really calmly figure out a course of action is a good way to handle an otherwise emotional, draining, trying experience with strangers you don't know. Yep. Goliath tribe, choose who you think is the weakest woman and the weakest man on the David tribe. Who did you decide on? We're gonna go with uh, purple hair and Big Bang Theory. <laughs> Christian, that's you and Lyrsa. Christian, are you surprised they chose you as the weakest male? It seems like a logical deduction uh, based upon what they see, but you know, perhaps appearances are, dece are deceiving. Christian working on the slide puzzle. It can be tricky. John and Allison on the cube. We're good, right? Whoa, out of nowhere! David's had the slide puzzle in less than five seconds, and this challenge is over. Christian, the big decision you made was not the physical part, because that was pretty close. It was the puzzle you chose for yourself. Because I've been on Survivor for a long time, and I have seen people try to do a slide puzzle and never get anywhere. It wasn't really like a fair fight because, like in undergrad, like I wrote slider puzzle solving algorithms, so it's not really it. So, you know, I figured we could, we could go that way. Gabby, this is really why that story of David versus Goliath is one of the greatest metaphors for improbable victories, because who would ever guess that somebody would have written algorithms for a slide puzzle and that that would come into play minutes into this season? You know, it's funny. One could say that I slayed Goliath with an algorithmic slingshot. <laughs> but I just go directly to the things I did wrong, and it's something I, I need to fix about myself. But I, I did make a few mistakes when I was moving around the pieces. It could have gone like a second or two faster. Yeah. It's just a matter of the combinations of all the little pieces. Like, around I, I, it. like there was like a move, like a left-right piece has to move around the board in order to Objective, get Objective external validation that I did it right. Was that good? I mean, I think it was good. I mean, maybe it was bad. 
I got to say on that uh, on that season as well, I was excited because uh, when I saw before I knew any before I knew you or anybody else that was going to be on the show, I saw that they had shown a preview where John Hennigan was on there, and I was a, been a huge fan of his from way back, even on Tough Enough with uh, WWF. <gasps> So. Oh wow! You saw you saw his his original appearance. Yes, yes. <laughs> and nobody was talking about about his previous show experience. And I was like, he was he won tough enough. He's used to winning these shows. Yes. Uh, but yeah, no, he he was the mega Goliath that you went up against in the the competition to start the show. So. Yeah, and and I, and I will say about John Hennigan, who, if you don't know, uh, uh, the audience doesn't know, he's he's a professional wrestler. He's now yes. in the WWE, right? And um, and he goes by many monikers, uh, one of which was the Mayor of Slamtown. Right. And I was like, and when I saw, when I saw him as the Mayor of Slamtown, I was like, oh my god, this guy, you know, I he cannot be serious about the Mayor of Slamtown. <laughs> I bet this guy has got a really great sense of humor about himself. Right. I bet he's smarter than he lets on. Right. I was not disappointed. He was quite smart. Um, but if but uh, on the show, I was like. You know, I got to be close to this guy because this guy sounds awesome. Right. I'm going to make myself. I, so I, I, I became the cop troller of Slamtown. <laughs> that was that was my that was my moniker on the show. Oh, that's so awesome. That's a, so that that was my relationship with John Hennigan. <laughs> I love it. That's so awesome. Well, as we're starting to uh, to to wrap up into the final segment, uh, is there one piece of advice you would give uh, a parent or somebody who's listening who wants to uh, pursue robotics or engineering? Uh, just kind of one maybe mantra or piece of advice that you've had for your career. So the one piece of advice that I found most helpful, and I'm not sure if someone gave me this advice or I figured it out, um, but whenever there is like a class project or a science fair um, that that comes up through school as a kid, uh, I would always turn it into a, a really big deal for me. Like I would, you know, like there might be an assignment where I remember one as I had to like graph a rabbit using like Excel, right? Okay. And, uh, and I was like, okay. And it, and it could be a really simple little rabbit, just like, you know, you know, circle with two little triangles for ears or something. Right. And I decided to make it an enormously complex thing. Like I went and found a rendering of a rabbit with like lots of lines. So it looked like really fancy. And... Um, I so I, I plotted this all out at home how it's going to work, and I, and I came into school the next day to go program the get the rabbit all drawn, only to find out my thing was so complicated the computer couldn't handle it, so I failed the assignment. Oh. Uh, so but but uh, I learned something in that a pro in, in that process, and I was really glad I did it, and I never uh, because I I learned more about how to accomplish an ambitious project, even sure. though. You know, in, in, in the scheme of things, that assignment didn't matter right. in terms of the grade. But it got me on this path of just kind of going all out, even if it wasn't for the grade. And sometimes, you know, that would mean that, like, I would do this project and be like, Christian, you went, spent way too much time on this. You know, you, know, you, you, you got the A on it. Um, right. But, it, but that mentality, when carried through toward my career, was extremely helpful. And yeah. that, like, eventually... You're not doing it just for a grade. You're doing it to sort of achieve your goals. Like, I want to make a robot that does this, and that's going to take a lot of effort and project planning. So really taking everything as an opportunity to be an ambitious and fulfilling project was probably the best decision I made in my upbringing. And, I, and, I, and, and, and you know, if and when I have my own kids, I, I think I'll, I'll encourage them to do the same thing. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Christian. And now we are going to segue into my favorite segment of the episode, the Dad Joke of the Week. It is a segment where I hurl dad jokes at my unsuspecting guest in order to get them to laugh while the audience groans. But I can't hear the audience. I can only hear my guest, so it works out. Uh, so, <laughs> Christian, I always like to put my guests on the spot first. Do you have any dad jokes you would like to offer up? Uh, dad jokes. So I, I, I remember I had an uncle... Um, who would tell the knock knock joke, which okay. was uh, uh, knock knock. Who's there? Uh, banana. Banana who? Uh, no, I, I screwed it up already. So I <laughs> screwed up the joke. Uh, it's orange, so right? The, it's, uh, yeah, it's orange again. Yeah, you've seen the the orange banana again. That's that's the one that jumps to mind. That, that as a kid, I remember, I was like. All right. And I think that was before Jad, Dad Jokes was a meme. Right. That was before the word meme even existed. Uh, right. So, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, I've got three, and they're all robotic-themed, and they are Dad Jokes. So uh, here you go. Right, <clears throat> prepared. Okay. First one is, uh, Christian, uh, what do robots eat as snacks? Uh, 
nuts and bolts? Microchips. I see. Because uh, they're very small. Yeah. They're very small. And they're chips. Yes. Yes. And they're chips. <laughs> yes. 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 Uh, what do robots do at lunchtime? See, I'm treating this as a challenge for me to predict that. Right. I, I don't know. <laughs> they have a megabyte. Have a I see. megabyte. Yes. So, 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 so you have microchips and megabytes. So if that's true, a microchip is 10 to the minus 6. A, mega, a megabyte is 10 to the 6. So it's the 10 to the 12th chips you're eating at lunch. I, yes. I'd, I'd advise the robot to, to have fewer robot calories. Right, right. Uh, this robot is Bender from Futurama. So I don't know. I'm just, uh, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right. Last one, last one. <clears throat> Christian, why was the robot bankrupt? He was short a circuit. Oh, that's a good one. No, he had used all his cash. C A C H E. C H E. Yes. You know, that could be a consequence of eating uh, 10 to the 12 <laughs> right. uh, microchips. That's a, that's a trillion microchips. And, you know, that, that's, I'd certainly be out of cash in that state. <laughs> yes, very much. All right. Well, Christian, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what is the best way for them to do that? So if you're interested in what I'm up to, I mean, you can follow me on social media platforms, on, on Twitter and Instagram. I am at Chewbicky. That's, uh, I guess, Chewbacca's uh, <laughs> younger younger brother. Yes. Uh, Chewbicky, C-H-U-B-I-C-K-I. Or you can find me on my website at ChristianHubicky.com. Perfect. And I'm going to link all of this in the show notes. So uh, if you're listening, just scroll down your feed and you will see it and we'll go from there. And then, Christian, mm-hmm. we need a hashtag for this episode. Uh, I've got two I wanted to run by you. Uh, number one mm-hmm. is uh, hashtag robotics. But the other one is uh, hashtag Mr. Roboto. Mr. Roboto is pretty good. Uh, see, you might want to do – so uh, <laughs> we, I, I like these. Uh, maybe we can do something that's, uh, that's associated with the dad jokes because this is the, oh. deep, the dad talks podcast. Right, right. So I, so I, I, I like uh, – uh, I, I think microchips is – that let's might be do more it. specific. Let's, let's do microchips. Let's do it. All right, hashtag microchips. Uh, well, Christian, I wanted to thank you one last time for coming on the show. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Joe. It's great to, great to be here. I appreciate you taking the time, and I hope people uh, took something away from this. Of course. And listeners, we'll be back next week with more great content. But until next time, hashtag microchips and hashtag be a better dad. If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at detoxpodcast or visit detoxpodcast.com. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. And special thanks to my producers, Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. Detox is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W. Dot com.